is really important that we don't all have the same same starting line and and also understanding that our opportunities shouldn't be defined by whether we were born male or female or non-binary. When you look at the larger U.S. economy, women are the breadwinners in 40% of U.S. households with children under the age of 18. There's 16 million breadwinner moms in the United States, and they support 28 million children. And Pipeline's actually done research, and what we found is that as a cohort, breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap. And and that that pay gap is not just equal pay for equal work, it's actually equal opportunity. So it ties into this leadership role piece, which is that they earn 66 cents on the dollar. Um, and, and so these are things that, you know, even, um, that actually impact our economy. We know that, for instance, we could add $512 billion to the U.S. economy if we close the gender pay gap. Welcome to the Mother Honestly podcast. This is your host, Blastine Adesio, founder and CEO of Mother Honestly. On this show, we interview ambitious women that are thriving in and beyond motherhood. Expect honest and real conversations that will encourage and inspire you to take actions on your dreams. Hello, thank you so much for joining me on the Mother Honestly podcast. I am your host for today's episode, Kristen Hall, the COO of Mother Honestly. And I'm so thrilled to have Katka Roy join me on the episode today, who's the CEO and founder of the Denver-based pipeline company, an award-winning cloud company that leverages artificial intelligence to identify and drive economic gains through gender equality. And for our listeners, you'll remember that she was also a guest as on our Caregiving and Work Summit a couple months back. So we're thrilled to have her on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, thank you. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you got into the artificial intelligence space, pardon me, career highlights, family highlights, and how you founded Pipeline. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, you know, I I came to Pipeline really uh, through three avenues. My, my backstory has uh, three tenets that really ultimately led me to this place. The first is uh, my my uh, family history. Um, the second is my sort of place in my family, and the third is my personal experience in in the workforce. So uh, it won't take long, but but all of those three uh, uh, really make up uh, where how I launched Pipeline. So the first is that I am the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee, and uh, my mom was an orphan at the age of eighteen months during World War II. Uh, was actually separated from her mother and four siblings and placed into an orphanage and adopted a year later and came to the United States at the age of 21 for equality and opportunity. My father was a refugee who actually escaped from the fall from uh, Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. And um, he actually escaped with my three eldest sisters. They crossed a minefield, arrived to a refugee camp in Austria and less than two months into their stay in Austria, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956. And for me, that really symbolized a couple of things. Uh, one was this idea that one person could make a profound impact in the lives of others. 
that it was really the courage of President Eisenhower standing up and saying, not on my watch, uh, that impacted uh, both my family and also my opportunities. And the second is really connected to that, which is that I was fortunate to be born in the United States and the opportunities that, uh, that I had um, sort of propelled me forward to what could I, what could I do with that? Um, I'm also, the second piece of that is my place in my family, which is that I'm the youngest uh, of six kids, five girls. And, um, you know, we lost uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg this year. And a lot of the work that she did, you know, things like um, making it uh, illegal to fire someone for being pregnant or women could actually get uh, business loans or credit cards without a male co-signer were things that I watched uh, impact my sisters and their families and the, their economic opportunity and really understood how when we tell little girls that they can be anything they want to be uh, if they do well work hard and do well in school that that's not really the complete story and um, and so sort of understood that at a very intuitive level at a young age and then the third piece is really my experience in the workforce. And I was a poli-sci major undergrad and had learned about women's issues, but didn't really think they applied so much in the workplace. And of course, experience is a great teacher. And I, um, I'm a breadwinner mom and I actually fought to be paid equitably twice in one. And I, I think from that experience, there were a couple of things that, that stuck with me. One was that if you, worked for me after I fought to be paid equitably the first time if you fought if you worked for me I was going to do everything I could to ensure you both were paid equitably but also had equity of opportunity that was one um, and I had inherited a few teams and discovered the inequities and so worked to fix them and then the third was I, I really understood through my experience in the in the workforce that if if um issues like gender equity or racial equity were not connected to uh, the broader picture of the company, they became sort of a nice thing to do. And that was really the springboard for Pipeline, which was that if we were going to close the gender equity gap, we had to look at it as not only a social issue or the right thing to do, but actually as a massive economic opportunity that we could tie to the financial performance of companies. And that's that's ultimately where Pipeline was born. Thank you so much for sharing uh, not only your personal experience with how your family immigrated and the challenges that they went through with your sisters and as well as what you saw on the workforce front. You know, I think for our listeners, we, we sometimes talk about these a little bit and they may not kind of have a good reference point, but when we meant by gender equality versus gender equity is that, you know, sometimes a lot of these in the media are that, or people may not know that there are differences between with gender equality meaning equal outcomes for women, men, and gender diverse people. And gender equity is recognizing that women and gender diverse people are not on the same starting position as men. And I think you hit on that really well kind of as you took over those teams. You know, how have you come so involved in driving these topics forward? You kind of had your experience through that, but now it's really become a passion for you to really push forward gender equity. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think that starting line piece is, is really important that we don't all have the same same starting line and, and also understanding that our opportunity shouldn't be defined by whether we were born male or female or non-binary. Um, 
my commitment really came, I have varied experience and degrees. So I have an undergraduate degree, political science, legal studies, and I have two master's degrees. The first one is in computer science and cognitive science. So essentially how you architect, um, how you architect uh, uh, technical systems to change people's behavior. And then I have an MBA and spent the majority of my corporate career actually working for heads of sales and then really senior levels in organizations. And I think, um, and from that looked at, uh, one, obviously I saw the inequities, right? And you can see that pretty clearly. Women are 57% of all college graduates, but they make up only 7% of Fortune 500 CEOs, right? So that in and of itself is a 50 uh, point gap. But the thing that I felt particularly um, maybe passionate about or that I could solve was this idea around gender equity, not only as a social issue, but as a massive economic opportunity. And, uh, and there were a couple of reasons uh, for that. One, it really changes the conversation um, from an us versus them conversation and, and, and moves it towards something where you can meet everybody where they are. You know, uh, gender equity is not a binary, you know, it's, it, it, that is, you are either not you are either not for it or against it. It's a continuum. You sit somewhere on that. So if we look at it through the lens of economics, one, you can actually meet people where they are. Two, you can understand that gender equity is not a, a, a synonym for women's rights. It's actually women are fifty percent of the conversation and men are the other fifty percent. And not just because they hold the majority of all leadership positions in companies, but also because gender inequity impacts men too. We just don't talk about it quite as often. And then the third is really that if you look at gender equity through the economic lens, what you understand is that gender equity is an intersectional gender equity. So for your listeners, um, we look at it through gender plus race and ethnicity and age. But intersectional gender equity is really about equity for all. If, there, if we continue to grow our economy, if we continue to grow our companies, there's actually more opportunity for everyone. So it moves away from this uh, zero sum game that, that, or, or mindset that we sometimes see. And obviously, clearly given my parents' history, you know, that sort of um, us versus them thinking was not, you know, not something that I would embrace. Absolutely, and thanks for providing that perspective for our listeners. Now more than ever, women are demanding a quick recovery after surgery. Women are incredibly proactive when it comes to their health and ask their doctors a number of questions prior to surgery. Unfortunately, there's one topic that they often forget to discuss, which can directly impact their recovery experience, non-opioid pain management options. Non-opioid options used before, during and after surgery can effectively manage pain while minimizing the need for opioids and limiting a patient's downtime after surgery. Planning for surgery? Unlock your X Factor by visiting yourxfactor.com forward slash M8 to learn more about non-opioid pain management options and raise your expectations for what is possible after surgery. For women, we you touched on it a little bit that you know they make up more. There's more college-educated women today than the average working men, but we still don't see a ton of women in leadership. You know what happens? What we're not on the same starting point. We're not having you know sometimes the same um, 
opportunities given or that, but what can, what are some of the causes that are driving this and where can we kind of close some of those gaps um, where we are on a more level playing field to get women in more leadership roles? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that's talked about uh, quite a bit, and, and you're right, the gains were uh, pretty significant right before COVID-19. Uh, and, and I think two of the, the most significant uh, happened in the year before COVID-19. One was that um, in Q1 of 2019, women, uh, college educated women had increased their labor force participation. So they actually outnumbered college ed educated men at, um, as part of the, the labor force, like those that were actually participating in the labor force, that was one. And then the second thing that happened uh, was at the end of 2019 was that women actually held the majority of all jobs in the United States. So we were actually starting to see, you know, that that push forward. And of course, we've lost we've lost almost all of those uh, gains that we saw. And the one of the things that's often talked about is the pay gap. So this 82 cents on the dollar, which is the aggregate pay gap, obviously worse for breadwinner moms, uh, for women of color. And the pay, one of the things that we have found, Pickling has found through its implementations is that pay is the symptom, it's not the disease. So you can't close the gender pay gap by starting with pay. And the reason is that pay is the quantitative value that you place on your talent, but the actual value that you place on your talent happens before that in performance and potential. And so we see things in performance reviews um, for instance, women are, uh, their emotional state is more commented on than their male colleagues. Their um, male, co male colleagues tend to have more direct feedback, more task focused feedback uh, from a potential perspective. And so for those who, who may not know what that means in the corporate world, there's potential ratings that, it, that companies do to say like, who will be our future leaders? How, how will we give them more visibility and development? And one of the things that we look at is that men actually are, are um, promoted for their potential and women are uh, uh, judged based on their, their past performance. So it's very hard for people to see women as CEOs or in roles that they're not already in. And that's really where um, this issue of women in leadership roles, uh, where you begin to see it. The other thing that we also see is we, um, we look at the promotion of women. That's, that's one of the KPIs that, that Pipeline looks at. And we look at where women begin to fall out of what, of what we call the pipeline. So, so uh, where does the pipeline start to leak? And what we have found, um, there's a lot of conversation around more women becoming CEOs, more women adding being in the C-suite or, or being on boards. The, the issue really is that that gap happens about 20, 25 years earlier with the very first promotion from individual contributor to team leader. That's where we actually see a 21 point gap on average. And actually, when you intersect that with race and ethnicity, it's much worse. So for instance, for Black women, that gap actually doubles to 42. Uh, so men are promoted at a rate of 42% greater than Black women. And that's why we actually don't see uh, more women in leadership roles. And it's um, re remarkably unfortunate. It's not only an issue of fairness. Um, it is actually an issue of 
um, the financial performance of companies. We know through uh, pipelines research across 4,000 companies in 29 countries that um, for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, there's a one to 2% increase in revenue. So even if you, you know, even if you are a student of um, shareholder primacy, you're really not doing right by your shareholders if you are not ensuring equity in promotions. And more broadly, uh, the when you look at the larger US economy, women are the breadwinners in 40% of US households with children under the age of 18. There's 16 million breadwinner moms in the United States and they support 28 million children. And Pipeline's actually done research. And what we found is that as a cohort, breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap. And, and that, that pay gap is not just equal pay for equal work, it's actually equal opportunity. So it ties into this leadership role piece, which is that they earn 66 cents on the dollar. Um, it's, and so these are things that, you know, even, um, that actually impact our economy. We know that, for instance, we could add $512 billion to the US economy if we close the gender pay gap. That's good for everybody. It's also good for our future labor force. You know, 40% of our future labor force is essentially being underserved and underdeveloped because we are not valuing their mothers equitably. That's something that all of us really should be concerned about in terms of not only our growth and our recovery from COVID-19, but what we will see 10 years from now, 20 years from now, as those children actually enter the labor force. Who said business and pleasure can't mix? Check out Lincoln.com. Luxury vehicles designed with you in mind thoughtful interiors and insightful technologies that provide an effortless ownership experience. There's so many points there and it's, you know, when you take it at the macro level, it almost is overpowering because it's, there's so many places where we could see improvement or market improvement where we make it in one area, as you mentioned with COVID versus kind of where we are now. I'm going to start before we jump into the COVID discussion, because I think that's kind of created a whole other, you know, ecosystem that we're going to have to contend with. But for companies, you know, they, a lot of companies now are, you know, discussing these targets they have to hit for having, you know, diverse candidates, diverse roles, women in positions of power. Um, and that sounds good and well sometimes, but we're not necessarily A, seeing companies hit those targets or B, going about it in the right way. What do you recommend from your research on what companies should be doing and where they can make some of these gains that actually are meaningful and not just kind of topical in nature to make a board report? Yeah. <laughs> also things that don't feel like tokenism or check the box diversity. I, I think that's, you know, one of the things uh, that we, and I will answer your question. One of the things that, that we really need to sync up, which is why pipeline exists is really this gap between company, and we've seen this in force in 2020, uh, particularly with the renewed calls for racial equity, is this difference between companies committing to equity, you know, either in public statements or, or committing to uh, public pledges, and the difference between that and the employee experience. 
both of the companies that I thought to be paid equitably at were held up as sort of these, you know, um, companies that valued uh, particularly gender equity. And so when you see this where, where you have companies committing to equity, but it not actually being realized, uh, what happens for employees is they say, oh, well, that's just a PR move. And I actually, I fundamentally believe that companies' hearts are in the right place. They're actually trying to do the right thing. But when you look at it at scale in particular, so companies that have 10,000 employees or more, that can be really, really challenging. How, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't solve it. It's just looking at the reality of it. One of the things that we've seen, unfortunately, and I think well-intended, but now companies are actually spending $8 billion a year, $8 billion a year on unconscious bias training. And it's well-intended, but it's ineffective. What, when you look at it through, um, when it's been studied in terms of what the results of unconscious bias training are, it either doesn't have any results or it makes it worse because it encodes stereotypes. And so one of the things um, that we do and at Pipeline is really embrace artificial intelligence as the way to hardwire equity into the future of work. And I think that is particularly relevant in the year of COVID-19 when we have seen uh, digital adoption actually accelerate by five years in a single year and this move to remote work, which I think on one hand has been touted as a good thing for gender equity. And we've seen that sort of mixed results because it also uh, puts forward kind of these gendered expectations of who does unpaid work. And the, the, the um, and 65%, by the way, of HR professionals actually agree with us that AI can be used to hardwire um, hardwire equity into the future of work. So let me talk about what that means. So we talked about the gender pay gap a little bit earlier and how it's the symptom and not the disease. We talked about the really the value decisions that happen about talent and performance and potential. What we've really found is those are really the three key decisions that companies make across their talent each year, which is performance, potential, and pay. So the average Fortune 500 company has 60,000 employees. That's 180,000 opportunities for them to move toward equity each and every year. Across the entire Fortune 500, it's 90 million opportunities. We have the opportunity to move using advanced technology, so artificial intelligence, from a system that we know is inequitable, right? We talked about women are 57% of college graduates, only 7% of Fortune 500 CEOs. So in the world that we currently live in, I have to choose to be equitable, right? I have to, we know that the system is inequitable. So as a manager, I'd have to choose to be equitable. What Pipeline has done is actually change that. And what that means is that we've actually, by default, it, our customers or ha, that ha, they their systems are actually equitable because all of their people decisions are actually running through algorithms to ensure equity. And then we provide recommendations and you either have to accept or reject the recommendation. Well, if you are rejecting a recommendation, you are choosing to be inequitable. So we're now, what we've done is actually fundamentally change the way that we move toward equity. And, and one of the things that we have talked about for almost since the inception of Pipeline 
is that for years, the solutions to gender diversity in particular have been focused on fixing women. So these are things like getting women to apply for more jobs or ending the uptick in their speech um, or teaching them to negotiate, all well intended, but the truth is that women are broken. They're, they're they are not valued equitably in the system. It's the system that's broken. So we need to really fix the system. And that's fundamentally what Pipeline has done. And if we, when we do that, what we actually do is see a catapulting toward equity, that it is actually possible to achieve uh, gender equity, intersectional gender equity in our lifetime. It's absolutely amazing. And just when you talk about the algorithms and people having the ability to accept or reject, reject that, it almost, I wish that we had more of a KPI for these companies. And sometimes it differs between a privately held versus a publicly held. Mm -hmm. um, but just to have that data, the powerfulness that if it was on an SEC filing, if it was on some of these really hardy documents that we have when companies go public or when you know it's reported to their board of directors, it's so strong just to have that there. So I love that Pipeline has taken that to, and what it can mean for companies. And I hope that, you know, for our companies listening on the podcast today, there's a lot that you can be doing. And if you aren't certain, you need to go back internally. You need to look at, you know, how are you making the salary decisions? How are you making those promotion decisions? What language are you using in the reviews? I think, you know, all of that there to take a step back because it's the 8 billion year that we spent on unconscional bias training. It's just, Eight billion is mind-boggling when you really think about it. One point I wanted to pick your brain on today in today's podcast is, unfortunately, with COVID, we are seeing a lot more women exiting the workforce, some voluntary, some involuntary, you know, due to consequential layoffs with businesses kind of having to take a step back. Um, and that one thing, you know, it's not something we've seen prior where women are very kind of terrified of how, A, are they going to re-enter the workforce or what, how should they address this, you know, for taking these step backs right now where it's, they may have not had much choice in having to take that leave of absence right now. What do you recommend or what are your thoughts on what the data is telling you related to COVID? So COVID-19, so I, I wrote one of the very first articles. Uh, it was for Fast Company and then did a quick follow-up the next week for NBC on really advocating for our elected officials, particularly Congress, to, uh, to ensure that they applied uh, a gender lens to the stimulus that they were pumping into the economy, which by the way, for your listeners may seem like a really long time ago. And, uh, and the reason why uh, my, my, um, my, the, what I talked about through the lens of data was that COVID-19, if we didn't apply the gender lens, was actually going to hit women on all fronts. So it's a healthcare, it's a pandemic. Women are the majority of frontline workers. They also make up the majority of the labor force in the industries that were hardest hit, so services industries, uh, uh, by COVID-19. Um, and also we, we know, and, and anytime there's an economic downturn, because women make less, uh, um, they are charged more for items, uh, they have hold more student loans, they actually have fewer cash reserves. So for instance, when the $1,200 went out per person and the $500 per child, if you were a single mom, you really kind of got left out, right? 
plus the fact that we just don't have pay get, paid caregiver leave in the United States. And so I advocated uh, uh, for that. Um, unfortunately, it was not uh, heated. Um, but to give your listeners a sense of what that looks like early on in the pandemic, and then we can certainly talk about some of the more recent job losses. Uh, women were 47% of the labor force before COVID-19, yet they were 55% of all the uh, job losses early on. So you've got an eight point gap. When rehiring started, uh, we saw a two point gap in rehiring. That is men were hired back faster uh, than women and that women's jobs were 1.8 times more vulnerable than, uh, than men's. And we, and if you just look at, you know, I think the September jobs report when uh, 865,000 women, uh, which has been talked about quite a bit, left the labor force, we, we have seen that, um, you know, women are leaving uh, because now they're having to handle caregiving. This is not an issue of fairness. This is actually an issue of our economic recovery and our future economy. When women leave the labor force, it actually constricts the GDP. So since 1970, women have actually added $2 trillion to the United States economy through increasing their labor force participation. And we know uh, just in pure numbers, not even the rate, women, women's labor force participation has been set back uh, three years this year. And wow. there is another, and we were already trying to make strides because, you know, strides forward in labor force participation of women because there was 789 billion sitting on the table for us if we did that. And that's really an issue. We should be thinking about things like caregiving and how we actually have paid caregiving leave. And I actually talk about caregiver leave. I don't talk about uh, maternity leave or paternity, paternity leave or any of those different things. And, and there's actually a very uh, good reason for that. I am part of the sandwich generation. So those, those folks that are caring for young children and elderly parents. And so we need to have caregiver leave. So one, we take gender out of it. And two, it really takes into account all the circumstances that folks are facing and particularly women of having to care for other people. That's one thing. We should also have sick leave. We should ensure, you know, I, I'm an advocate of forgiving uh, student loans because women hold 67% of all student loans and that is directly tied to the pay gap. We should be ensuring um, that women are actually receiving equitable, uh, not equal, but equitable uh, stimulus uh, because they don't have as much money uh, saved because they don't make as much money. They don't, you know, and so we really should be thinking about that too, and, and then to actually get women back into the labor force. You covered so many excellent points there, and it's, of, I love that your approach to the caregiver leave, because I think a lot of times, yep, we just think about it in terms of uh, kind of related to like the beginning part of life, but we do have a lot of people that are contending with raising children as well as caregiving for, you know, it could be older parents, as you mentioned, it could be someone else in their network and to kind of take that lens away from it, that it's just kind of open to utilize as needed for the point you are in your life, I think is the huge thing. And there's a lot of issues there that you hit on that 
you know, we, ha- we have so many opportunities to improve and so much work still to be done. And, you know, I wrote down, I'm always amazed just when you see like the, the three years for what it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's mind boggling. Like that's one of, I always tell people when I record these episodes or I listen to them, it just, it hits you right in the gut sometimes of mm-hmm. just what are we dealing with and what are we contending with? Connor, I could talk to you all day. You always have <laughs> <laughs> such a fascinating and just the data I love it it's so great but I wanted to you know for our listeners how can they continue to follow your journey you know can listen to the more of the articles that you're putting out everything that you're doing it's so needed it's so value-added yeah absolutely so yeah I write quite a bit um both my, for myself but also publications such as fortune and um and uh and fast company and world economic forum among, NBC among many others uh, folks can find me at Katika Roy uh, on uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, uh, on Facebook. It's official. Katika Roy is the handle. Um, you can find uh, more information on PipelineEquity.com or KatakaRoy.com uh, and connect with me there. One of the things I wanted to mention to your listeners: you talked about metrics and um, and how companies should actually. Um, be reporting more than just financial measures. And we've actually advocated for that, which is, I think, more commonly been known as stakeholder capitalism. So there's actually a Fortune article that I wrote and actually talked to the Fortune Connect um, uh, community earlier this week about that. And so anyway, just in case your listeners are interested in what stakeholder capitalism looks like from a gender equity perspective, I've written about that. But again, they can find me um, on social media at Katika, K-A-T-I-C-A, Roy, R-O-Y. Awesome. And we will include links as well to those articles. I was reading the NBC one the other night, um, and it's a, it's a great piece. So we'll make sure to include that as well when we release the podcast. Thank you so, so much for being a guest. Um, we always love hearing from you. It's such a great support of the Mother Honestly community. community. So thank you again for being a guest. I wish you nothing but the best in the coming weeks, and I hope that you stay safe and well and to your family as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning into the Mother Honestly podcast. If you want more relevant content for the ambitious mom, Head on over to MotherHonestly.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at MotherHonestly. Love our podcast? We want to hear from you. Please rate and review our podcast and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We love growing at Mother Honestly and your reviews help us grow. Stay safe, stay well, and always stay ambitious.